Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Changing Faith podcast. 50. We have done 50 episodes, uh, which is kind of feels like a, a bit of a mile marker for me, uh, for us. And so for those of you who, um, from the very beginning, have listened faithfully and you've interacted, you've asked questions, um, thank you, sincerely thank you. Uh, for continuing to listen and continuing to interact. And not only uh, is the Changing Faith Podcast 50, but we are here at the beginning not only of a new year, but a new decade. And as a way of marking that, we're going to spend uh, the next several episodes talking about things we can do to be more intentional in our lives as we move into the new year and the new decade. And I want to explore today the question, do we live our lives with intent? Do we live with intention? Now, when I say that, um, I guess the way of thinking about it would be this. Imagine uh, you were in your car and I saw you and you slowed down or pulled over and I said, hey, where are you going? That would not be an unusual question because most of us do not just get into our cars and drive around for no good reason or drive around aimlessly. Now, I suppose every once in a while that could happen. But most of the time, when we get into our car, we're maybe going to work or we're going to meet up with some friends or we're having to drop somebody off somewhere or we're going to the store to buy um, stuff for dinner. This is what I mean by intent. Uh, do we know why we are where we are? When I talk about intention, do we know what we are doing and why we are doing it? Do we know, do we have a sense of this is where we are going? Just like you would when you're driving a car. I'm here because of this. This is what I'm doing. And this is where I'm going. This is what I mean by intent. And I, and I want to suggest that most of us, most people, we don't live with intent. And maybe it's uh, more fair to say we do not live with an awareness of our intent. And, and so think about it this way. If someone were to say to you, hey, what are you all about? What would you say? Like, do you have a response to that question ready? What are you all about? Or does that question stump you? Now, I believe our intent, what we are about, and all of those things, I think they continue to grow and evolve and become more clear over time. I think sometimes they change, and I think sometimes they, they, they come and go. Uh, and depending on our lives, there, there might be several intentions or several intents. I mean, for me, uh, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a pastor, I'm a son, I'm a brother. Um, and so th there's can be like several intents, like when it comes to those questions of where are you going, what are you doing, uh, with regard to different areas, uh, so to speak, of my life. And so our intentions can ebb and flow, and so can our clarity with regard to exactly what these are. And I say all of this because I don't want this question or this podcast to lead any of you to think, well, I need to find my sole intention or like my one intent. Rather, I want, us, I want it to lead us to consider, do we have an understanding of where we are, what we are doing, and where we are going? Like, do we have a sense? Do we have an awareness of like, yeah, I, I know where I am uh, and why I'm here. I know what, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and I know where I'm going or where I'm heading and why I'm heading there. And by the way, that's just the first step. And I say that because 
All of us are a part of something bigger than ourselves. And when we become aware of that something bigger, that can actually help us clarify our intention. And that's what we'll talk about a little bit today. Uh, And I start, by the way, the new year talking about this because I know for many people, resolutions are the big thing at, uh, at the beginning of each year. And most of those New Year's resolutions actually end up failing. And you might, like, if you're listening to this and we're two weeks into the new year, you might already be like, yeah, if I'm honest, the, uh, the, the resolution has already failed. Uh, there's a, I see this each year. There's a gym uh, that I go to, and it's interesting to see how each year it gets really crowded the first week of January. By the third week of January... It's still busy, but it's not crowded like it was the first week of January. And by the end of February, it's completely back to normal. And it's the same thing with those who say, uh, like, we're going to spend less or I'm going to commit to healthier eating. That it starts off, like this resolution starts off the new year and then within a few weeks, month or two, it begins to fall off. Whatever it is, it seems more resolutions at the new year fail than those that succeed. And I want to ask, why is that? And I think it's possible that it has something to do with our intentions or intention or our intent or the lack of intent. And here's why I say that. Uh, Let's say that you set a new year's resolution. Let's say you're one of the people who signs up for a gym membership. And so you go out to kind of motivate yourself. You buy some new workout clothes some Lulu's, uh, new shoes, like new gym shoes. You get a playlist together and you put it on your phone. You got your, your headphones, the whole deal, and you hit the gym. And your first trip there, you and I see each other. And I say to you, hey, good to see you. I've, I've never seen you here. And you're like, yeah, I just joined New Year's resolutions, you know? And I'm like, well, good for you. What made you join? You're like, well, you know, I wanted to get into better shape. And I'm like, oh, that's good for you. Why? Well, you know, to feel better, to, to, to look better, just kind of getting tired of being out of breath after I walk up a flight of stairs. And I say, well, okay, well, why do you want to feel better and look better? Like, why do you care if you're out of breath after you run up the stairs? At this point, you're like, hey, dude, back off. I just came here to work out and you still have not commented on my brand new workout clothing. <laughs> And uh, I'm like, well, why do you want to feel better, look better? And you're like, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, you see, this conversation could keep going and going and going because I can keep asking why to every response you give me. And what I have learned in many conversations with people over the years is that when it comes to things they want to do, whether that's a New Year's resolution or just something they say, I want to do this, it's often at the level of what they want to do. But when you ask, well, why do you want to do that? It's fascinating how the answers become much more difficult to get to. I remember having a conversation with a guy, this is years ago, and he was in my office and we were talking and he, he had said like three or four times, like, I just want to become more like Christ. I just want to become more like Christ. And finally I said to him, Um, you've said that several times. Can you tell me, why do you want to become more like Christ? And the funniest thing was he looked at me a little bit odd, like, hey, you're a a pastor. Like, (laughs) your your world, your job is about getting people to become more more like Christ. And I feel like you're challenging me. And I actually was. Why do you want to become more like Christ? 
Like you've said that a bunch of times. And what was fascinating is he looked at me for a while and he said, uh, I, I don't know. Why do you want to become more like Christ? I don't know. And I think when it comes to the head of each year, New Year's resolutions, I think they fail for the same reason this guy couldn't tell me why he wanted to be like Christ, because we don't know. We don't know why we are doing these things we commit to. And if there's no point, if there's no why, then, well, who cares? If I'm in my car driving and I can't tell you why I am where I am or what I'm doing there or where I'm going, what makes the most sense in that moment is for me to go home and park my car and go inside and sit on the couch. And in so many ways, this it feels like how so many of us like enter a new year. We have these resolutions, these ideas, these things we're going to do, and then you begin pushing people, well, why are you doing that? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe we should just go home and sit on the couch for a, a few minutes because in so many ways, it feels like we've lost the plot. I, I meet few people who seem to have a real, true, deep sense of not only who they are, but where they are and what they're doing and where they're going and why they are where they are and why they are doing what they're doing and why they are going where they're going. They have like this inner direction, this inner compass, so to speak, this directional heading that, that they, have a, they know deeply within them why they are doing these things. And, and see, most of us, we live life, if we're honest, we live life on autopilot. And by the way, it's really easy to fall into this. And, I, and I, at this point, I don't want you to hear me judging anybody. I, I'm sincerely doing my best just to make an observation. And by the way, I'm guilty of this. So it's not me like sitting in some ivory tower talking to all of the listeners of the Changing Faith podcast. Like, no, no, this is us. This is us. We're making observations. Uh, and we're making the observation that we often can just live on autopilot. We have a routine and we may not even be aware of our routine, and we may not even be aware of how we got into our routine in the first place, but every day, every week, every month, every year, if we're honest, it begins to look exactly the same. To quote the uh, Tyler Durden, everything becomes a copy of a copy of a copy. I mean, think about, think about every day. It starts when we wake up to an alarm clock. And if you are like me, you have a measure of hatred for every morning when that alarm clock goes off. We stumble across our bedroom, we make our way to the bathroom, we brush our teeth, then we take a shower, which by the way is kind of an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? We take a shower. Seinfeld, by the way, has a whole bit on this. I just think it's an odd, odd thing to say if you think about it. Take a shower. We, we take a shower. Uh, then we dry off, we get dressed, we do our hair, do our makeup, uh, make coffee, we cobble together something that resembles breakfast, we pour the coffee into the travel mug, we go to the car, the train, we call an Uber or walk to work, we get to work, we open our computer, we look at the calendar, we open email and watch it fill up again. And with each email landing in our inbox, we experience a corresponding amount of rage. By the way, at this point, you might be like, man, you are like this is like a huge downer. And, and let me point out, at this point, it's still morning. And if you're one of those people who wakes up every day, like super bright-eyed, flies out of bed, screaming, this is the day the Lord has made, let me just say, I hope 
we never get to a place where we interact in the morning. Nonetheless, your email inbox is now full and you begin to reply to emails. You contact a client, you set up a meeting, you complete your TPS report, and of course, you put the cover sheet on it. Then you go to lunch, but then you realize you forgot to pack your lunch again, which means you're now stuck shelling out $12. You, you then start slugging through the afternoon knowing that there's going to be the 2 p.m. crash, and at that point, time is crawling. You push through until you can leave, and that time finally comes. You are up and you're out. You make your way home the same way that you came. You stop at the store on the way. You get whatever it is that you need there. You get home, and now your phone has your full attention. Facebook, and you can feel your soul darkening, and you know that every minute you're on that, you're dying just a little bit. Then you text some friends. You turn on the TV. You make some dinner. Still, you're on your phone. A few more texts. Oh, then you make sure you post a picture of your dinner on Instagram from the top, just the plate. More TV, a few more texts. Then you wonder, well, dinner's over. Glass of wine? Maybe some whiskey? Nah, it's Tuesday. Ah, hell, whiskey it is. I mean, how many people liked my picture on Instagram? So then you go and you check that. Then you check your personal email. Then you think, I'll reply tomorrow, maybe. Then you think, man, good choice on the whiskey. Take a yawn. One more episode? I mean, it's not really binging if I only watch two, right? A little bit more whiskey? No, nah, I shouldn't have that, but maybe some wine is fine. A bigger yawn, show is over, TV off, to the bathroom, brush the teeth, face washed. Check social media one more time just to see if anyone else liked my picture of dinner and then bed. And then what do we do? We wake up to an alarm clock and do this all over again. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. Now you're like, dude, this is the most, dep <laughs> this is the most depressing episode of the Changing Faith podcast I've ever heard. Yep. At this point it is. And, and, and let me say this. I know I'm painting with broad brushstrokes and I know I'm creating a bit of an exaggeration, but this is how so many of us live at one level or another day after day. This is why, by the way, our days run together. We can't remember what we did last Wednesday or what we did yesterday. And if we're honest, this happens because we live with very little intent. And one of the reasons that we live with little intent or with little intention is because we don't see ourselves connected to anything bigger. Maybe I could say it this way. We don't know what larger story we are a part of. We don't know what story our lives are telling. And if we do not have intent, then our lives will get sucked into a story of some sort, whether we want them to or not. And most of us are a part of stories that quite honestly, they're just not that interesting. And we seem to have been co-opted by the story our culture is often telling, a story that is really based on things that are frivolous, a story with a plot that's just, just boring. Donald Miller, uh, at the beginning of his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, which, by the way, if you've not read that book, I, I think it's far and away his best book, uh, he begins with, uh, with a prologue, and this is what he writes. If you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd just seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody 
cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to feel meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. Isn't that the truth? And how many of us, when we consider the story we are wrapped up in day after day after day, or consider maybe our lack of intention, how many of us really have to admit that at one degree or another, what we really want is a Volvo? Like, we, we want to, to win, we want to gain, we want to get. I mean, it's so boring. I, think about it this way. Consider the New England Patriots. Now, I know there's some people who are like, oh, I hate when, you know, pastors or speakers use sports examples because I don't like sports. Okay, if you don't like sports, hang with me. Let me explain something to you about the New England Patriots. They win everything. It feels like that anyway. They won six Super Bowls over the last, I don't know what it is, like 15, 20 years. And if you are not a New England Patriots fan, you hate the New England Patriots. People who uh, care about football are not ambivalent about the New England Patriots. There is like some serious, serious anger directed toward them. And the only people who like them are Patriots fans. Why? Because they always win. It was the same way with the New York Yankees in the 1990s. We hate people that always win. We get tired of it. It's boring. It's a predictable story. But here's the thing. So many of us want to be people who only and always win, which is honestly a little bit confusing. It's like we want the thing that we hate. But this is what I know. Winning and always winning, it's a boring story. Like anyone who grew up with any, every advantage, we don't care about that story. We want those people like Tom Brady and the Patriots to lose because something in us knows like it, it, this is not, this isn't real. This doesn't work in real life. This is not the way my life is. And yet this is the life so many of us live. We're trying to get a Volvo. And I, I mean, I don't think that we would admit it, but, but if you consider like, again, how we live our lives day to day, how many of us live our lives seeking to impress other people? Like when we're telling a story about something at work, we just, we tweak it just a little bit to make maybe some small success seem just a little bit bigger. Or we talk about an argument that we got into and we always have the upper hand in the argument and we come out sounding like the one who was right and therefore we exonerate ourselves. Just the little ways that we try to impress people. What about um, how we've given ourselves over to achievement? That it, so many of us live our lives as though like the most important thing is the next promotion or the bigger house or the nicer neighborhood or the better school, whatever it is. To, we seek to gain and we seek to get, we seek to achieve, we seek to win. And for what? For, for what? Like, why are you doing that? Back to that question. Why, why are we doing that? What's the point? Because these stories are not meaningful. These stories are not interesting. These stories are somebody driving off the lot, uh, testing the windshield wipers at the end of the movie. But we get caught up and swept up into these stories all the time. 
And when we get caught up into these stories, we lose intention. Or, or maybe I should say, we lose the plot. We miss the story. Years ago, uh, I went to film school, which is like a little known fun fact. And so like, I don't know if this ever comes up as a question in Geeks Who Drink. Now you know the answer. Like, yes, he went to film school. Um, and most of my time when I was at film school was focused, uh, I focused on screenwriting. And uh, I worked with some brilliant teachers and got to uh, work with other brilliant screenwriters, people who had already gone through film school and, and beyond. And every project that I worked on, there was always a central question that was always like in the air, in the room when people were sitting around and talking about the script. And it was a question that came with every line of dialogue, uh, a question that surrounded every scene, a question uh, that came with every action by a character. And it was this, is this, is this line, is this scene, is this action, is this moving the plot forward? Because if you have too much uh, in the film, in the story, that's not connected to the plot or that's not moving the plot forward, you lose the plot. You, you may have seen a movie and you, when you're done with it, you're like, that movie was terrible. You may not actually even know why. It might be because you watched a film that had all sorts of details and all sorts of um, words and dialogue that that seemed all disconnected. You couldn't make sense of the whole thing because it wasn't moving the plot forward. You have to ask the question, is this moving the plot forward? Which means that every word that you write in the story of a screenplay has to move the plot forward because there is a larger story being told. It's not just the scene. It's not just the line. It's not just the action. It's all serving the larger story and it's all moving the plot forward toward that because, which means every word and every scene and every action has to have intention. There is some intent to move the plot forward. By the way, this is the same thing with stand-up comedy. The best comedians uh, in the world are those who have a punchline. They start with a punchline oftentimes. And then what they do is they begin building and building and building around the punchline. Or like as Judd Apatow talks about, you you wrap things, as many things as you can, you wrap and wrap and wrap and wrap around the punchline. So what you're doing is that with every line, with every joke, with every story, you're building and building and building and building all around this one central idea Everything is pointing toward that idea. Every joke has intent. By the way, Jim Gaffigan is one of the best at this. Um, on his first uh, special, which is now an album titled Beyond the Pale, he, he talks about cake. And by the way, if you've not listened to Beyond the Pale by Jim Gaffigan, that is an assignment for you by the, <laughs> by the end of January 2020. It is so hilarious in Beyond the Pale, he has a whole bit about cake. Cake. And, and he talks about cake for like probably more than 10 minutes. And here's the thing. Every single word, every single line is hilarious. And the whole point is cake is powerful. And it's, it is side-splittingly hilarious. Why? Because every single word that he crafted, it moves you toward the punchline. It has intent. 
It has intention, and he delivers it with that. And by the way, the best comedians are ruthless in their work. If they tell a joke one time that bombs, it's out. They're done. They'll never tell it again. They're always asking at the end of every show what worked, what didn't work, what needs to go, what needs to be deleted, what needs tweaking, what needs more, what needs less. There are some comedians that will say when they go on tour, every show is different because they will try a joke and it will land and then they'll tweak it and they'll try it again and it won't land as well and they'll go back to the original one and they'll finally get to a point of going, no, that one's out. We're not going to use this anymore. They're always, always, always crafting because everything for them, it's intent. It's delivered with intent. And when it comes to us and our lives, whether it's the punchline, whether it's the plot, whether it's the story, if we're not aware of the story we are a part of, or if our story is like, I mean, really, if we're honest, like it's about getting a Volvo, we will forever struggle to live with any real intention. Because if you don't know where you are and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know where you're going, there's no point to any of it. If, you don't, if you're not telling a story, then everything is just like random bits of details. And we will forever struggle to live in those moments with any kind of intent, with any real intention. And when we struggle to live with intention, well, at that point, you can just, like I said earlier, you can forget about any kind of resolutions at the new year. I mean, why go to the gym or why eat better or why spend more responsibly if there's no plot, if there's no point? None of it is going anywhere. So if we're going to live with intention, we ought to begin by asking ourselves, what story am I a part of? Or what story is my life telling? Now, before you hit pause and rush to write down a plot or discover a narrative, it may help to contemplate what makes for a good story. And this is where we turn to the great Joseph Campbell, or as, uh, as, as Pete Holmes calls him, Joey Cams. Um, Joseph Campbell has a brilliant book titled Hero with a Thousand Faces, in which he contends... There is one prevailing story that has been told across time and across civilizations for as long as human beings have been telling stories. Uh, some call it the monomyth. Uh, it, it's also called um, the hero's journey. By the way, two books, if you're interested in this, um, that do a great job of breaking down heroes, Hero with a Thousand Faces. One is called The Writer's Journey by Chris Vogler, The Writer's Journey. Um, and Chris Vogler imports Joseph Campbell's ideas about from Hero with a Thousand Faces and says, here's how you can structure a good story. Uh, another book that deals with this, uh, with the Hero with a Thousand Faces is called Winning the Story Wars by Jonah Sachs. And uh, in Winning the Story Wars, this is about how do you, th this one talks about branding, so it may not land specifically with you and your world, but it gives you an idea of what this story is that Joseph Campbell unpacks, this monomyth, this, this hero's journey. And what Joseph Campbell tells us is that these stories that have come out of civilizations uh, from all over the world and from all different eras, they follow this arc, generally speaking. And the arc is, uh, I'll walk you through it. The, the first step in the arc is the ordinary world. Uh, so you have your hero in the story, or the protagonist, we might say, um, and they might be uneasy or uncomfortable or unaware, and they're introduced, I would say, in a way that makes the audience identify with their situation or their dilemma. 
Um, the central character, the hero, is shown against a background. Uh, so there's an environment, there's family stuff, heredity, there's personal history. And th- there's something in the hero's life that you learn about when they're in this ordinary world that seems to be like it's a tension. It's pulling them in different directions or pulling them in a direction. Or there's some, there's almost like some kind of dissatisfaction that you can't really you can't really identify, but you know it's there and it causes some sort of stress. And it's in the midst of this ordinary world that you have the second stage in this arc. That's the call to adventure. Uh, and the call to adventure is basically something that shakes up the situation. Uh, it's also referred to in screenwriting as the inciting incident. Um, that that it, it, maybe something comes from external pressure or um, it's something rising from, from deep within, and the hero needs to face the beginning of change. And so uh, somebody dies, or there's a car crash, or they lose a job. Something happens in their ordinary world that is a call to adventure. It kind of slaps them upside the head. Third stage is the refusal of the call. They don't want anything to do with it. Uh, the hero feels... The fear of the unknown, they turn away or run away from the adventure. And sometimes it might be a really big thing. Other times it might just be a small thing. Um, But they have uncertainty, fear about whatever lies ahead because it's unknown. And so they see it as danger. The fourth uh, stage is the meeting with the mentor. Um, and this is when the hero comes across or connects with a someone who's a, a seasoned veteran, a traveler. Uh, someone who's gone through this sort of thing before, and they give the hero, uh, whether it's training, advice, or equipment, that, that it's going to help them on the journey. And uh, the hero, in this meeting with the mentor, they're able to access some sort of wisdom or courage within themselves that they wouldn't have been able to have without the mentor. And then they go to the fifth stage, which is this crossing of the threshold. And so the hero says, I'm out. Uh, I'm leaving the ordinary world. This call to adventure and this meeting with the mentor has beckoned me and I'm going and I'm entering a new a new place, an unknown world, a new region or a new realm for you Game of Thrones fans. Um, there, there, there's something that's unfamiliar with, with regard to rules and cultures and everything else. And it's once they cross that threshold that they enter what's called tests, allies, and enemies. Uh, exactly what it sounds like. The hero is tested. They figure out who's with them, who's against them. Uh, They begin to sort out allegiances in this new world. And it's in these test allies and enemies that they then, uh, seventh stage, approach the inmost cave. And uh, this is them. You begin to see where this is all going. This is, again, the plot. That all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is coming to a head. Oh, Something big is going to happen. Oh, there's going to be a major challenge here. There's going to be a life-altering decision that they're going to have to make. There's going to be a moment of reckoning. And that's uh, the approach of the inmost cave. And then that moment of reckoning, that big moment, is the eighth. It's called the ordeal. Usually, uh, the hero enters a space and confronts death or faces their greatest fear or has some kind of death or something happens um, that's life-altering. But it's not just life-altering, because out of the moment of death, there springs this new life, or this new insight, or this new skill. And that's the reward. This is the ninth stage. The hero takes possession of this, this thing that they've learned that's called the treasure, 
Um, and, and they this thing that they've learned, this new skill, this new life, this new wisdom, this treasure comes from their facing death, comes from their ordeal that they went through. Uh, there might be a moment of celebration. There might be a moment of cheering, but the story's not over because it's brand new, whatever it is they got, and so there's still this risk of them losing whatever it is they just got. That's then the road back. This is number 10. Um, this is where they're, they're driven to complete the adventure. Like, okay, I got this new thing. Now what am I going to do with it? I have this new skill, this new idea, this new life. What am I going to do with it? And this is a sense of where they're saying, I'm going to bring this back home. I'm going back to my ordinary world, but I won't be the same when I get there because I have this new thing with me. Um, typically, like in movies, there's like a chase scene. There's a fight scene. It, it begins to tell you, like, them getting home, this road back, like, it's not going to be easy. There, there's some urgency. There's some danger. Then there's the resurrection, as it's called. This is the 11th stage. Remember, we're only on 12, so we're pretty close to being done. And uh, this is, again, the hero is or the central character is tested like one more time um, on their way home, like on the threshold of returning. And they're like, this is like their purification ritual. So they've, they've died, they've come back. And now there's like a, another moment of death and rebirth, but it's like at a, at a higher level. And the way the hero responds this time is with greater understanding, with greater maturity. And the, that tension that you felt in them at the beginning, this, this dissatisfaction, whatever it was, you begin to see that this is now gone or it's resolved. And then the last stage is called the return with the elixir. And that's when they return home. They go back to their ordinary world, but they're no longer themselves as they were when they left. And they continue the journey, but they bring something back to the village, bring something back home that has the power to transform their village or has the power to transform their world because it's transformed the hero. So this is the story. It's somebody, ordinary world, something happens, they go through an ordeal, they learn through the ordeal, they come back, they have a death and a rebirth cycle, and then through that death and rebirth, they're given a new life and they serve others with a new life. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that sounds really familiar. Yes, of course it does. It sounds really familiar because George Lucas said, if there's no Joseph Campbell, there's no Star Wars. Every Star Wars film, which by the way, can we all be honest, can we please stop making Star Wars films? I know some of you are cringing when you hear me say that. Others of you are pumping your fist. We need to be done. It was a good run. Well, it was an okay run, but it has been way too long. Nonetheless, no Joseph Campbell no Star Wars. This is what George Lucas said, because every uh, episode, at least the first three that he was deeply involved with, were based off this narrative arc, were based off this story. Um, by the way, it's every Marvel movie. Um, I know Marvel fans have a really hard time hearing that because they want to think that Marvel's like this th greatest thing ever that was created by Stan Lee. Stan Lee was a student of Joseph Campbell and was a great story writer. Uh, it's the movie Braveheart, Gladiator, and the Patriot, which are basically all the same movie. It's um, pretty much every Pixar, Disney movie that you've ever seen. It's every great epic, Lord of the Rings, anyone? Ringing a bell? Um, it's interesting. This is like a template for storytelling. And somehow what Joseph Campbell unearthed is that every civilization is telling a story that falls along this arc. Now, 
there's different ideas sprinkled in here and there, and there's different films that kind of tweak these ideas or like maybe we'll put them out of order, whatever it is. But this really is a template for all kinds of films and all kinds of novels. I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago the the book The Writer's Journey by Chris Vogler. Chris Vogler points out is the one who points out this is kind of the template for a lot of Hollywood movies. And, and by the way, that was a long way of <laughs> pointing out something, which is this. Central to the story unearthed by Joseph Campbell, this monomyth, this hero's journey, the, this story that we've given ourselves over to, the story that we watch played out over and over and over in films, central to this story is pain or failure or death or some sort or, of ordeal. And not only is it like part of the story, it's central to the story and we all trust it and we all keep returning to see it played out over and over because something within us knows it to be true. We know that pain is a part of the story and we know that pain has the power to transform us. I mean, just think about the Olympics where, again, something, another thing that's happening in 2020, we have the Summer Olympics coming up in Tokyo. Um, the job of people... Uh, on American television stations who sit in the studio wherever the Olympics are, their job is to make the American public interested in sports we otherwise do not care about. Now, I know some of you are like, oh no, I love figure skating. No, you don't. Because you only only watch it every four years. Like, I don't know anyone who's like texting a friend being like, hey man, did you see who won the figure skating competition in Toronto last week? Like, we... We don't. We genuinely don't care about figure skating. But you have broadcasters who know they have to hold our interest. And what do they do? They tell stories of the athletes who are figure skaters. And the stories they tell of those athletes is not about like, this is Sarah. Isn't she beautiful? She grew up in Beverly Hills, and from the moment that she was three years old, she had the best skates and the best coaches. And because you would be like, I, I want to see her eat it. I want to see her fall. I want, like, I want some sort of pain to enter into her life. Because, so what stories do they tell? They tell the stories of athletes who've been through pain and struggle and trials, like. They tell of some young girl who was born in Siberia and her parents died in the harsh weather of the tundra when she was only three years old and uh, she was like left to her to fend for herself and she had to raise her four siblings and every day she went to work early and then she would go to school to get an education and somehow even in the midst of that she still found time to skate and in her skating she broke bones and she had significant injuries and she had at one point one of her younger sisters stole everything from her and then she had to go through an intensive surgery causing her to miss the last olympics and this is her last chance and she's come back and she's worked harder than ever and right before the olympics her coach and her mentor died in her arms on the ice rink because she had just landed her first triple axel <laughs> and tonight she skates in his honor you hear this story, of course, there's brilliant editing with it and like incredibly dramatic music and everything is shot with a soft lens. And here's what happens. By the time she skates out on the ice, you find yourself standing up and cheering. You're like, come on, Santiana. Why? Because this is the story we know deep in our bones to be true. This is the story that's always told and it compels us. It draws us in because something in us is like, come on, All of that pain has to mean something.
we, we intuitively know all of that pain, all of that pain is a part of the plot. All of that pain is moving the story forward. All of that pain is going to make her stronger. And you know that when she skates out on that Olympic ice, she is skating with more conviction and more resolve and more passion than the girl who grew up in Beverly Hills. Because it doesn't matter if the girl in Beverly Hills loses. But now this means everything. This is the moment. This, this is when the pain that she's gone through, this is when all of that is shown to have meant something. And I point that out because we need to pay attention to this. We need to pay attention to this in our own lives because quite honestly, it is the pain and it's the struggle and it's the, it's the death of a loved one. It's the betrayal of a good friend. It's getting fired from a job. It's uh, like whatever it is. These are the things that shape us. These, these are the things that make us who we are. And so when we're talking about our stories, well, yeah, this is all a part of it. And when we, when we learn this, when we learn to trust this idea of what pain does, then we can integrate that part into our stories too. And then our stories take on depth and take on passion and vision and beauty they otherwise would not have. Now our story is not just about getting a Volvo. Our story is not just about winning. Now our story has some real, real depth. And by the way, I know so many people who are trapped by their pain. So many people who've been through unspeakable tragedies and they've become bitter because of it. They, they, they now live lives defined by that pain. And, and by the way, to the extent that I am able, uh, I understand that and I get it. I, I do as, as much as I can. But, but what I know to be true, and this is by the way, in my own life, and in the lives of other people I've seen, and in the story that humanity has told since the dawn of time, is that there is so much more for us in our stories, and there's so much more to our pain. I mean, think about it. When, when you meet somebody who's angry and jaded because they went through a tragedy, like, I don't know anyone who meets somebody who's in that place, and they're like, man, you gotta go hang with Doug. Like, the dude is so pissed about what happened in 2013. No, when you meet somebody like that, you're like, Oof, wow, man, that, that Doug has, he's got to work through some stuff. But the same can't be said about people who've been through hell and back and somehow they're better. My wife and I, we have uh, some friends that visit us quite often and uh, they came and we're actually just kind of passing through town and they stay with us for a couple of nights and they told us, hey, we're bringing one of our closest friends uh, with us, if that's okay. We're like, yeah, of course, the more the merrier. And so they came into town, and their friend who they brought, we have known her uh, kind of at a distance for several years. And what, I, what we did know about her was this. Over the last just few, few years, um, she has lost both her mom and her dad. Um, her son died. She has grandchildren who have the same condition that caused her son's death. And then she told us this story over dinner one night. Uh, her husband had died, but then she told us, yeah, it all started one day when I was at home and I looked at the clock and I thought, well, that's weird that my husband's not home. So she called him. And at this point, it was like two hours after he was supposed to be home. And he said to her, oh, yeah, hey, thanks for calling. That's weird. I... I just kind of like forgot to come home, which of course you're like, what do you mean you forgot to come home? Exactly. So I, she was a little bit troubled by that. So he got 
up to leave work and ended up just wandering around in the parking lot. And so they knew immediately something is deeply wrong here. So they bring him to the hospital and they do a scan and they found that cancer was everywhere in her, in his body. And uh, she said to me, she said, there was even cancer in his toes. Like it was everywhere. And within a week of that, the doctors told, told them that he had four weeks to live. Four weeks to live after like 30 plus years of marriage. Four weeks. Oh, I, I, she's telling us this. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, you are radiant. Like there was something, like not, not a denial of the pain, but like somehow like an embrace of all of his pain. And there was like this buoyant, joyful radiance. And, and my wife and I and our, my kids, like we've, we just found like we wanted to be with her and listen to her the whole time she was with us. Like all of us stayed up until she went to bed because we were like, we, we, ha- we have to be with this person because there's something that is so, so compelling about people who are transformed by their pain. There's like some sort of magnetic draw. We know like this, it's not just that their story is interesting. Their story is powerful and deep and passionate and beautiful because these are people who, who did not waste that pain. These are people who like the hero and the hero's journey. They went all the way into it and they went all the way through it. And now they've discovered something that they can bring back to the village. And their story is so much better. And by the way, if you're listening, every single one of us have this opportunity in our life. Because this is what I know for sure. This is what I know to be true. All of us will face pain. All of us will face pain. And by the way, if you're like, well, I haven't faced any pain. Okay, just live a little bit longer. It will come. Pain is a part of the story. And not only that, but it, it is the pain that will, if you let it, that can give you intention. It is the pain that can bring intent because it's the pain now that you begin to go, oh, I, I see how this is integrating into my story. And that's what can begin to give you some intention. An example of that uh, actually comes out of my own life. Uh, a lot of the intention that I have in my life really actually is directly connected to the pain that I've experienced and how that pain transformed me. I mean, like, why, why waste it? It's going to happen. So it can either wreck you or it can build you up. So don't waste it. Um, many of you know, uh, I did a podcast. I don't remember which one it was, but it was called I Was Hurt by the Church. Uh, I just got railroaded, run over, wrecked by uh, a church that I had helped plant years ago. And um, I go into detail. If you want to listen to it, I think it's called I Was Hurt by the Church or something like that, or Hurt by the Church. Um, I go into some of the details there, but it was it was honestly the worst. And the lowest point, the lowest moment was sitting on my kitchen floor with my wife, and we're both crying, and my son, who at that point was like not even two, um, was like hitting us, like, don't cry, don't cry. Oh, just, it was terrible. Um, and, and I can say now that experience shaped me in ways I could never have imagined when I was sitting on that kitchen floor with my wife crying. Um, and so much of who I am and, and the way that I serve today is directly related to that experience. And, and to this day, I carry great intention 
uh, in the work that I do because of that experience. Um, and some of the intention is as long as I'm uh, working in the context of a local church, uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that never happens to somebody because that's the worst thing ever. Um, and, and so I have intention, for example, to communicate clearly um, to, to the best of my ability. And when I don't communicate clearly or when my communication breaks down, to own it, to admit it, to apologize when needed, seek forgiveness and reconciliation where that's needed, and to work on it, to, to say, okay, you did this, let it make you better. Um, I have great intention to be above board with people. Like I'm not, if somebody says or does something to me, I'm not going to go and talk to somebody else about it, but to be above board and say, Hey, you did this. Um, and I received it this way. Let's talk about it. Let's figure this thing out together. Um, and I do this by the way, not only with people that I work with, but I want to, I want to do this with everybody. Um, I do everything I can to remain healthy and by health, I mean, I mean, spiritual health, emotional health and physical health. Because looking back, I saw uh, in those who worked my wife and me over, there was so much unhealth and so many untapped areas in people's lives that were unaddressed. And I was like, no, 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 if if you're going to do this, uh, if you're going to tell a better story in the context of your work, you have to remain spiritually, emotionally, and physically healthy. And so some of you are like, well, what does that mean? Like, how do you do that? Well, uh, it means seeing a therapist. Um, I, I routinely see a therapist. I always tell people I have a therapist on retainer, <laughs> um, cause I'm not always seeing one, but I routinely seen one right now. I'm in a season where I am seeing a therapist again, to k- kind of literally work through more areas of pain from my story and how I can integrate those into my life. Uh, I, I intentionally remain in and avail myself to very close personal, intimate relationships. Um, I am so grateful uh, for the five men in my life who are like, they're, they're like brothers to me. Um, I'm so grateful for people who, who know me deeply and love me and cheer me on and challenge me. Um, and be, because they help me remain spiritually and emotionally on course. Uh, and then there's things like when I talk about the physical side of just breathing, thinking, spending time each day as I'm able to think about my breath. Uh, I do this a lot when I'm meditating. Right now, I'm in a rhythm of reading a portion of the Gospels in the morning and then sitting and taking a few words from those scripture passages uh, and doing a breath prayer with them. And um, it, just that, that wow. rhythm of breathing. And we'll learn in a few weeks, by the way, um, on the podcast, why breathing is so important. Wow. Just a little bit of a, uh, like, a, I would say, a preview for you as my dog barks in the background. Uh, another thing, too, is exercising. I, I just, I, I want to continue to exercise because what I realized is staying in good physical shape is a part of the whole deal. That when our body begins to break down, it affects our minds and affects our spirits and everything else. Um and I, I do these things. I have this intention because I want to be a part of a larger story about a faith community that out of its own healing and its own wholeness and its own brokenness and its own health, out of all of it, that we can bring healing and wholeness and health to others. And by the way, that's just one like small piece. But I had this sense because of people that were around me in those moments years and years ago of like, don't waste this pain. This is a part of the story. Integrate it. And now your story really, really takes off. Now it has some depth. And so I wonder, what if we were those who learned to take a step back and to contemplate our story? And by the way, I want to recognize this can be difficult. 
um, going and revisiting painful parts of your story, it's really difficult. Uh, I don't believe we're meant to do this alone. So maybe it's inviting those close to you into this. Like, yeah, let's like revisit our stories. Let's contemplate our stories together. Um, and, and maybe you're listening and you're like, well, man, that sounds really intimidating. Totally. It can be. And that's, by the way, that's totally okay. But it can be uh, so helpful when we think about intention to consider this question first, contemplate our story, because when we do this, it will help us learn what moves the plot forward. What, what am I doing that moves the story forward? What am I doing that serves the larger narrative? And it's at that point then that we can ask like the great comedians, well, what worked? What didn't work? What needs to go? What needs to be deleted? What needs tweaking? What needs more? What needs less? And little by little, we will find the things that move us forward and move others forward and move our story forward, the things that move the plot forward and the things that push us more deeply into the plot and into the story. And then when New Year's rolls around, we might find that we have the freedom to simply reflect on the year that was and reflect on the year that's coming. And maybe we need to add a resolution or two, but even if we do that, we'll also know why we're adding those resolutions. Or we just might find like, ah, we don't even need resolutions anymore. We, we don't need them because now we have a story that we're a part of, that we're telling, and we know what it means to move the plot forward, that we're learning and we're relearning all the time where we are, what we are doing, and where we are going, and why we are where we are, and why we are doing what we're doing, and why we are going where we're going. And we'll come to find our lives have intent that we are living more and more with greater and greater intention. And so my hope for you, my hope for you is that you would be those who consider, who reflect, who contemplate on the story that your life is telling, on the story that you are a part of, and that you would have the courage to ask yourself the questions, well, what story am I telling? And maybe even coming face to face with the fact that the story you're a part of or the story you're telling, it's not the story that you want to tell. And that as you walk more deeply and fully into your story, that you would find that in all of it, the good and the hard, the beautiful and the messy, that all of that does not have to be wasted, but has the power to shape you. And it can lead you to discover what moves the plot forward and that that would lead you to find more intention as we begin this new decade. Well, that's how we're beginning this new year. I am so excited for the episodes to come. But for today, the 50th episode of the Changing Changing Faith Podcast, that's it. On our next episode, we welcome author and therapist Andy Colbert to the podcast to lend some more ideas of ways we can begin this decade with greater health and with greater intention. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.